Mark 5, 21-34 When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we begin? Jesus, today as we hear your story, as we enter into the text and and, um, see your encounter with this woman, would it create for us... um, It's like a moment where we ourselves might encounter you. We come in here with different experiences, and those experiences shape how we might see you, how we might feel about connecting with you, how we might feel about this place. And so as we hear this story, would it be a new experience that helps rewrite and redefine and recreate experiences? that we might know ourselves as welcomed, as safe, and as wanted with you. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, My name is Johnny. I am also one of the pastors here. It's very good to have you. Um, Who here has read or maybe seen the Narnia movies and or books? Oh, yeah. As I say, this is a Christian community. Narnia is like second to the Bible, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, every week, I've tried to like wrap myself out about how nerdy I am, so now we're going to do it with Narnia. If you've not read Narnia, uh, very simply, it's a magical world of talking animals. And uh, <laughs> this really simplifies the whole plot of the story. It's a magical world. You get to it from a closet. There's talking animals. What's there to talk about? And one of the central characters, or I should say the most central character in this whole story is Aslan, who is the lion. And I talked about Tolkien recently, and so I'm going to show you this meme that sums up my favorite understanding of Tolkien versus C.S. Lewis. Tolkien, a very sophisticated writer. C.S. Lewis, Jesus Lion, go rawr. (laughs) Aslan is the Jesus Lion of the Narnia story. And all throughout the books of Narnia, all throughout the text, all throughout the history of the world, Aslan is the Jesus character. Aslan 
roars the universe into existence. Aslan sacrifices himself on an altar of stone to rescue the world. Consistently, Aslan shows up as the Jesus character. And in the very final book of Narnia, book seven of The Last Battle, Aslan has not been in Narnia in a while. And there's a king who is ruling, who is a good king. His name is King Tyrion. And he's ruling Narnia, and he's never met Aslan. He's heard stories. He's grown up on these old tales of this Jesus-y lion and longs to meet Aslan, but never has. And one day, he is sitting by a tree with his friend Jewel, who's a unicorn, as they are. And they're having a conversation, actually, about how they have heard rumor that Aslan, the Jesus lion, may be coming to Narnia. And this fills them with so much joy and excitement, like, oh, one day we're going to meet this character, the central good guy of this story. We're going to get a chance to meet him. We're going to hear the hero, see him face to face. And as they're telling this story, something very strange happens. Uh, They hear rumor that this, like, magical living wood Again, we're in the world of Narnia. You just got to keep going with it. Where the trees are alive, it's being cut down. And the trees and the limber are being sold to foreign nations. And the king is like, these are my people, because trees are people in Narnia. Uh, Again, as they are. And he's like, who's doing this? And he finds out that it's happening at the word of Aslan. He's like, that doesn't sit right with the stories of Aslan that I have heard of. So he and his unicorn friend, they move further into Narnia, trying to investigate what is happening. And when they're going to investigate, they find more rumors of things that are happening at the behest and command of Aslan that are upsetting. And the final and worst of all of them is they find out that Narnians themselves, the people and the animals of this kingdom, are being sold into slavery to foreign kingdoms at the command of Aslan. And there's, a, there's a, a phrase that often defines Aslan throughout the whole book series. So from book one all the way to the end, and it is that he is a good lion, but he is not tame. And so every time they hear that something bad is happening throughout the land of Narnia, they justify it by saying, well, he is not tame. And so maybe that explains what's happening. Maybe that can make sense of the reality that we're experiencing. Like, these things are bad, but he is not tame. And so we can't begin to question or begin to understand or begin to comprehend the mystery. But as the rumors continue to grow, and as Tyrion and Jewel hear more and more, they grow depressed and sad and afraid of What if the stories of Aslan that we have been told aren't true? Because there's something about these new narratives, these new stories, these new rumors, these new actions that are being done in the name of Aslan that don't fit the old stories. And so what if something is wrong in us? And there's this very beautiful moment where Tyrion says, would it not be better to just be dead than to have this terrible fear that Aslan is not actually good. He compares it to seeing a sun rise that was actually a black sun, and Jewel the unicorn says it would be like drinking dry water. Something would be so wrong, and it would be better to be dead than to face this terrible reality that Aslan may not be good. 
So Tyrion is faced with a question and a growing fear. What do you do with this new character named Aslan that you are meeting? What do you do with the growing fear and discontent and frustration that you are experiencing? Do you live with it and justify it and just say, oh, this must be the true Aslan? I'm hearing stories and rumors and lots of people seem to believe it. So do I just go along with the story and believe that this is who Aslan is? Or do you go and challenge the lie or the fear? You go try to find Aslan and find out whether or not this is truly who Aslan is. And that brings its own set of terrifying questions to the table. Because what if you go and find out that Aslan really is doing all of these things? It might unmask something. It might reveal something is false. But it also might confirm your worst fears. So what do you do when you need to connect when you need to face the truth, when you need to have a conversation, but you are terrified of what that might reveal. We are in a series right now called Brother, Sister. And this series is all about exploring our spiritual attachment to God. The question that we're asking is, how do we relate to God? How do we connect to God? How do we associate with God? Because for all of us, regardless of whether we answer that question in the positive, that we attach ourselves to God in really secure and really healthy ways, or we feel much more insecure, for all of us, there is this opportunity on the table to develop more secure attachment, deeper connection. So we're asking ourselves, how do we do that? How do we connect with God? How do we develop that kind of attachment? And this week, I don't know if you listened to it, but this week, uh, Heather's podcast, Spark, which is like our midweek podcast, she interviewed therapist Robin Ray about attachment theory, and they had this really great conversation where Robin said, experiences rewrite old experiences. So you've had negative experiences, say, with a caregiver or with a significant other or with a religious institution or with your faith, whatever it might be, the primary way that those experiences get rewritten and recreated from an attachment standpoint is you have to have new ones that are better and healthier and good. Those new experiences have the power to rewrite the old ones. So to help us do that, this is not the only way to do it. There's lots of other things we need. But to help us do that, we're looking at the biblical story, at experiences Jesus has with real people. So far in this series, we looked at Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night seeking some kind of questions and answers. We've looked at the story of the Samaritan woman who is liberated by being known and seen. And last week, we looked at Jairus, who's full of anxiety and worry and invited to rest. These experiences help us in some way, create space at least, to have new experiences that might rewrite our old ones, or just create new experiences that might develop our sense of attachment. So we're going to continue doing that, looking at experiences. And today, the question or the thing we're looking at is what do you do when connection is what you need, but it feels terrifying to connect? 
Like we need to connect with God. We need to develop relationship. We need to secure our attachment. But to do so feels terrifying. Like it provokes all those worst triggers in us. Maybe because the experiences that we have had have been negative or damaging or because the stories we've heard or because our history is that way. So what do you do and how do you begin to connect when it feels so frightening to do so? The story we're looking at is uh, in Mark chapter 5, which was read for us. And the story begins with Jairus, which is what we looked at last week. But in the middle of the Jairus story, we get this other episode of this woman who is healed by Jesus. And her story begins, uh, we'll start in verse 24. Jesus hears from Jairus. He gets up to go with Jairus to heal his daughter. And it says, so Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed all around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and she had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she had grown worse. We don't know a lot about this woman. Scriptures don't like tell us exactly what her condition is, but we know that she has been suffering from a bleeding condition for 12 years. It's a long time. She's been sick for 12 years, and she has sought care from doctors, but nothing has worked. In fact, it says that she has suffered under the care and gotten worse. Now, if you've ever had a chronic condition or you know someone who's had a chronic condition, you probably read this and you can just immediately feel some of the pain and frustration that would come with this experience. It is so painful and frustrating to feel like your body does not work. It is painful to feel like nothing you do can change it. It is demoralizing. It is shame-inducing. And it is so frustrating and painful to engage in a system that says it's going to fix you and it never seems to be able to. It's frustrating and painful and difficult. We know that in our own world, in a a world that is much better at dealing with medical conditions than this one would have been, and we still know that experience. But on top of her own frustrations and experiences that are familiar to us, she would have also had to deal with a deeply religious world. And to suffer a bleeding condition in ancient Israel made you ritualistically unclean. It was a religious state that you would find yourself in. And to be ritualistically unclean, it wasn't to be in sin. I think that's important to say. Like, it wasn't sinful to be unclean, but it was a state of being that excluded you from much of life in ancient Israel. So if you were ritualistically unclean, you could not enter the temple to worship. The idea was that you actually might make it unclean. You couldn't interact with people. You couldn't touch people because you were unclean, and the notion is your uncleanliness would spread to those around you. If you laid in a bed, your bed was considered unclean. It would have to be washed or burnt or fixed after you were clean. So she is ritualistically unclean, isolated from social settings, isolated from religious life. These things that give you identity and connection in ancient Israel and in our own world today, she is excluded from because she is unclean and she will make things unclean. 
That is her declaration for 12 years. For 12 years, this woman has suffered. She has felt sick. She cannot get better. The text says she spends all her money trying to get better for 12 years. And on top of it, for 12 years, she is excluded from worship. She is excluded from community. She is isolated from the places that give you connection and identity and a place to belong. For 12 years, she is named unclean. It is not hard to imagine what that message would communicate to a person. After 12 years of hearing that you are unclean and unfixable, it is not hard to imagine that that would begin to communicate to the deepest part of you that something is wrong with me. That something is broken, that something is flawed, that something in me is untouchable. It is not hard to imagine that that consistent message, that reoccurring declaration would lead to shame. Brene Brown defines shame in this really powerful and simple way, saying this, it is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's the message that something is wrong, that something is broken, and therefore I deserve to be excluded. Therefore I am unworthy of welcome and connection. The shame is tricky to navigate, to diagnose, to talk about, to break out of. Shame is tricky because for so many of us, Shame begins in us in experiences that are really real and profound. So for this woman, it's an experience of being sick and an experience of being excluded. That's a genuine and real experience that would create in her a shame narrative. That would write over her a kind of story that says something is wrong. But often what happens in shame is that when we've lived in shame long enough, we begin to interpret or even act out of shame. Which then goes to further contribute to the shame that we often experience. In small ways, you see this all the time. Think about like if you're nervous about entering into a social setting, and you're like worried about what people will perceive you as and how you'll be perceived in a social setting, and so you're like, you know, to get comfortable, I'm gonna drink a little bit more than I normally would. And then you embarrass yourself in a social setting and it's like the two things then work together to communicate shame. So you felt shame about entering the space, and then you feel like I embarrassed myself in that setting, and you're like, oh, I feel additional shame. Right? In shame, we can often do things that contribute to our shame. Sometimes we get caught in something, and we can lie. I feel like oftentimes that lie then confirms the worst feelings that we've ever had in ourselves can feel weird about an interaction, right? And then you like text later to solve the interaction and maybe say too much or expose too much and you feel shame in that interaction. I've done that many times. <laughs> so you have this feeling of shame and then often what that feeling does is it leads us to act in ways that further the feeling of shame. 
begins this tricky cycle. But then when you feel shamed, here's the most tricky part about it. When you feel experiences of shame or do things that are shaming, the go-to technique is to hide from the shame. To avoid connection with others so that they don't find out the shame that you've had and the ways that you've exposed yourself to shame. Shame is rooted in a fear of connection, and so we hide from connection in order to protect ourselves from shame. So instead of being known, we try to hide our shame away. And you can do that in so many different ways. You can do it by physically hiding away and being like, I'm going to isolate myself from community and social settings. My favorite way to hide shame is with self-deprecating humor. You just like expose a little bit, right? And then it's like, oh, people have seen it, but there's so much more underneath the self-deprecating joke that stops being seen. You can lie, just cover it up. But like the action, the problem with hiding is that it so often confirms the shame. We stay away from people and begin to believe that we stay away from people because we should or because we're unwanted. We lie to hide shame, and then the lie feels like it confirms the very shame that we are experiencing. Or we make self-deprecating jokes, and it confirms like the very worst thing about us. The uh, comedian Hannah Gadsby in her special Ninette has this really beautiful line about how she's done doing self-deprecating humor. And she says this. She says, I built a career out of self-deprecating humor. And I don't want to do that anymore because do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from someone who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. So we make a joke or we do these things to hide and what it actually does is it feels like it makes us less. And this is what makes shame so tricky is that it creates a cycle that traps us into ever-growing feelings and experiences of shame. And the longer that we live in that cycle, the harder it is to escape from the feeling that something genuinely is wrong with us, that we are not genuinely unwanted or dangerous or beyond repair. And this is where that woman has lived for 12 years. And it is what makes this next moment in the story so marvelous and strange. In verse 27, the text says this. This woman who has lived in this system and cycle for 12 years, because she had heard about Jesus, because she had heard some good news rumor, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. Shame makes us afraid of connection. It tells us that something in that interaction will go wrong. But like King Tyrion in the story of Narnia, she's also heard good stories. She's heard that something else might be possible. And so somehow this woman who has lived in a shame cycle musters this immense amount of courage to venture into the world and to touch Jesus. And in verse 28, it says, her bleeding stopped immediately, and she sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. She mustered every shred of courage and bravery and maybe just desperation to overcome that feeling of shame. She reaches out and touches Jesus, and she is 
healed. But then it says this, Jesus also sensed it. And in verse 30, it says at that very moment, Jesus recognizes that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? If you've been living in a shame cycle, I feel like this is the moment that your shame has been waiting for to trigger. You touch his clothes, and all of a sudden he starts looking for you. You don't know Jesus's intention. You don't know what he is going to do. And so it says in the text, verse 33, the woman full of fear and trembling came forward knowing what had happened to her. She fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. She's like, you can feel the anxiety if you've known shame and you, you've had this interaction. You've reached out with your risk and your courage and then all of a sudden, this tenuous moment gets created where you're like, oh, the, the hammer is going to drop. He's going to see me. She's waiting for the worst and then in verse 34, it says, he responds, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Healed from your disease. This moment is so fascinating to me. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus create this moment with her? Why does Jesus create almost like this spectacle with her? He knows the power has gone out of his body, which means he probably understands what has happened. Like, he understands that something has occurred, someone has been healed. Why create a moment that centers her in this space, right? That, that creates this weird moment where she's going to be seen. Why do that? I think it's because a moment of connection is what she and those who are watching need. As we just talked about, shame is rooted in this fear of connection. And so much of what happens in shame is about perception. It's about how we perceive ourselves. It's about how we believe that we are perceived by those around us. And it is how we are perceived by those around us. And I think that is actually why Jesus makes this moment public. Perception has to change for shame to be undermined. How we perceive ourselves, how we believe that we are perceived, has to change if shame will be undermined. That is especially true in a religious culture where the world around her views her as unclean. A declaration needs to be made that that is no longer true. In that world, to touch him would have been considered a wrong action because she would have made him unclean. I think even for Jesus' own sake, Jesus could have avoided that, avoided the contention of that, avoided the shame that he would incur himself in that moment. Jesus could have hidden that or even condemned the action in front of all of those religious people. But instead, Jesus makes it public, not to shame her, but to identify with her and call her daughter. In this very simple act and in this very simple public moment, Jesus absorbs the cultural shame that she carries. Biblical scholar Mark Baker says it this way, Jesus centered shame, countered shame with loving acceptance. 
by boldly absorbing the shame of others, willingly taking on their shame to protect them from further shame. We see this all the time throughout the Bible when people have been excluded, that Jesus steps into a kind of relationship with them that changes the way they are viewed by those around them. So if you think about the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is the wee little man up in a tree. Have you ever heard that song? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He is scorned by the, Isra- the people of Israel. And what does Jesus do? He makes a public display of eating with him, of going to his home to be present to him. And in so doing, Jesus incures shame but alleviates the shame that Zacchaeus would have experienced culturally. In the story that we will look at next week, the woman who is accused of adultery and dragged before Jesus to be murdered, Jesus absorbs her shame and stops her from being executed. Jesus has this consistent habit of stepping into places where people are excluded and identifying himself with them absorbing the shame that they carry in a moment, absorbing the shame that they carry in culture, and taking it from them. Sometimes in church theology, we call this substitution. Jesus substitutes himself from those people around us. And oftentimes that metaphor, that language, is pictured in like a courtroom, in front of a jury and a judge. And that's really beautiful and really helpful. But sometimes the worst courtrooms and the most painful courtrooms are the ones of our peers or of our own making in our mind. And in these stories, Jesus is substituting or identifying with the victims or the shamed or the condemned. Standing with the accused and saying, they are mine. And to condemn them is to condemn me. What I carry, they now carry too. And what they carry, I also carry that. Jesus always stands with those who are accused and absorbs their shame into himself so that the perception of her changes publicly and internally. Now for perception to change, And for Jesus to create this moment with her, something else also has to happen. Jesus has to actually connect with her. For perception to change, we need true connection. And in shame, that is the thing that we are most afraid of getting. Because we're afraid of what happens in a shame cycle. I get into that scenario and I find out the worst is confirmed. The worst belief I have, the worst fears I have, what if those things are confirmed when I get there? You can see it in this story. The woman touches Jesus. She is healed, and then she hides in the crowd. She is afraid of what might happen if she's found out. Because again, what she has done is technically wrong. But Jesus does not let her hide. In the busyness of this moment, and it is a hectic moment, Jairus' daughter is dying. That's the other part of this story. They are rushing. There is a crowd around them that makes it hard for him to even find this woman. It is a busy and chaotic scene. Anxiety is high. And in this moment, Jesus stops everything to find her. There's a phrase in developmental psychology called yield state. I just began to learn about this recently, but the children need yield states 
with their caregivers because yield states are moments of like relaxed connection. It's like when a child looks up and what they see is their parent just looking back. These moments are really important for development because they have no purpose, right? They're not about like accomplishing something. They're not about achieving something. They're not about teaching a lesson. They're just about connecting. As we have these moments, these yield states moments with our caregivers or with people that love us, it creates in us a sense of lovability. We are loved and we are lovable. I think that's what's happening in this moment with Jesus and the hemorrhaging woman. There is so much chaos around him. There's all this movement that is taking place. And in the midst of all of it, Jesus creates a space to stop being anxious, to stop moving, to not accomplish anything. She's already been healed, but just to connect with her. To create a place where she could be loved and to dispel the fear and the shame that she has experienced. It's a yield state. A moment of connection that communicates to us we are loved and lovable. Now, these things are very hard to believe in the shame narrative. It's hard to believe in a shame story, especially when we believe it about ourselves. And I think that's why we get this moment in verse 34 as Jesus like finishes up his interaction with her. In verse 34, he says this to her. He responds, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. I think this is an interesting phrase because in some ways it kind of like runs counter to most of what we believe about faith and theology. We believe that God heals, and even in this text, it says power comes out of Jesus and heals her. So then why does he look at her and say, your faith has healed you? Why does he do that? So I went and looked. Just to, what are the other moments that Jesus does this? I just, you know, I didn't know. There's four other times that Jesus has a conversation like this and uses this language. Or four times altogether. There's the story here of the hemorrhaging woman where she is healed and Jesus says, your faith has healed you. The other time he does it is to a man who is named Bartimaeus. And the other thing that we know about Bartimaeus is that he is blind and a beggar. And he's on the streets begging for money and he hears that Jesus is coming and he shouts out, Jesus, would you heal me? Jesus heals him and Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Fascinating. The next time that Jesus uses that language, it's with a leper. Lepers are people who have skin conditions and just like a hemorrhaging woman, a skin condition made you ritualistically unclean, removed from society. And to him, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And then the final story that I could find is with a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, and it's in the presence of a Pharisee, a religious leader, and she enters into the house. She begins to anoint Jesus' feet, and the talk immediately is like, what is this woman doing? She is full of shame. And Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has saved you. How fascinating. All of these people are folks who are culturally excluded. 
who for some reason have religious narratives written over them that say you do not belong, you do not have access, you do not get to be in these places, you do not get to touch what is holy because you will defile it. They are people who are removed and pressed aside and pushed into the margins. And to even enter into holy places is to shame it and defile it. And to each of these people, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And I think the reason for that is that it is a mighty act of courage to risk in trust when everything around you has says you do not belong. When every story around you has said you will ruin this place, when every story around you has says you are unclean, you are broken beyond repair, you do not belong, it takes a mighty act of bravery to say, I'm going to try anyways. A mighty act of maybe even desperation to say, I'm going to follow him in the crowd and just touch his clothes because I've heard some stories that may be different than the ones that are being told to me by the people around me. It takes courage to believe that you are welcome, let alone forgiven, let alone able to be made whole. Christian therapist Crispin Mayfield has this really beautiful quote where he says, what, it, or what a risk it is to speak our pain aloud. It is downright perilous to take a chance with the most powerful being in the universe. It is downright perilous. But when we don't take the risk, we rob ourselves of the chance of experiencing God's compassion. There's a text in Hebrews uh, Hebrews 11, which is often referred to as like the hall of fame. It's these stories of people who have done these great acts of faith. And it's this beautiful chapter about the actions of faith. And it has this like consistent uh, like liturgical refrain, by faith, blank did blank, right? That's the phrase that keeps happening over and over again. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abram went into a land that was not his own. By faith, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. And right in the middle of it, it explains Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that God exists. And what? That he rewards those who seek him. Faith is believing, despite all other stories, that God would like you to come to him. Faith is the courage to approach God, to believe that you are wanted back home, to be like the prodigal who has spent all your money and all your time, and to believe that I think my dad might actually welcome me. By faith, she reached out and touched Jesus when all the story said she shouldn't. In the final book of the Narnia series, King Tyrion finally decides to go and confront his fear. And uh, he's actually taken prisoner, and he's never able to, like, himself go and confront it. And finally, a little girl, actually, climbs into a barn to figure out 
what is happening with this false line? And she enters into the barn, she finds that it's uh, nothing other than a donkey wearing a lion costume, which is very C.S. Lewis, Narnia. It was a bad lie. Spoken enough and believed by enough people that it seemed true. Missio shame is a bad lie parading as truth. And it has been spoken enough over us and spoken enough by us that it feels so entrapping. And it needs to be unmasked and confronted with the truth. But it takes a great act of courage to do either. It takes a great act of courage to unmask the lie of shame and to reach out to the real. So, Missio, the question I have for us today as we begin to close is simply what courageous act and what risk can we take to unmask the lie of shame and to move towards the real? It doesn't have to be large. It might feel large no matter what. Maybe it's simply a practice of confessing and repenting. That's a big risk to feel and to act upon the truth that God wants you home. Maybe it's simply naming pain and the hurt that you've experienced, as Crispin says. It's just saying it out loud and believing that God wants to hear it. Maybe it's rest. It's a practice of moving slower than you normally do. And maybe it's asking someone to pray over you. It can be any of these things. What's the risk this week that you can take? Would you just take a minute, in a second, I'll pray for us, and then we'll create a minute of silent reflection just to wrestle with that question. And after that minute of reflection, would you bring that question to this table? We gather here every single week to practice communion. And I'll end on this. This is a quote by Father Gregory Boyle, who runs Homeboy Industries. He has this beautiful quote about what it looks like to eat with Jesus. A thing that we do every week as we gather at the table. We practice eating with Jesus. This is what he says. To those paralyzed by toxic shame, Jesus says, I will eat with you. Jesus goes where love has not yet arrived and eats with outcasts, rendering them acceptable. Let's pray. Jesus, today, would you connect with us? No matter where we are or where we're coming from, what we're experiencing, would you just create a moment of connection? So that our sense of who you are, our understanding of who you are could grow. It could grow in security. It could grow in depth. And maybe that needs to challenge some lies and some shame that we've held and continue to hold. Would you create a moment of connection that makes that possible?
We know that with you, there's a space where we are seen, a space that we are safe. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.